HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Sexton Single Malt Irish Whiskey, the best-selling Irish single malt in the U.S. The Sexton is an unexpected modern malt for the everyman, rich in hue, approachable in taste, and memorable in character. Learn more at thesexton.com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, HRN's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating pride. We speak to the bakers who created a custom wedding cake for Charlie Craig and David Mullins, the couple behind the Masterpiece Cake Shop Supreme Court case. We felt that what happened to Charlie and David was an absolute injustice. Kat Johnson addresses the controversy surrounding Anthony Porosky, Queer Eye's food and wine expert. Many viewers thought these recipes were unsophisticated. And finally, Hannah Forden speaks with nutrition educator Leah Kurtz about the relationship between veganism and queer identity. It's an interesting way in which food can challenge invisible value systems even greater than sexuality does. Listen to Meat and Three, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E this week, and celebrate pride with HRN. Available on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and your favorite listening apps. Hi, I'm Moxie Rosenblum. My dad, Harry Rosenblum, hosts Feast Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy, and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Today, I am recording live from Tenants Harbor, Maine, and as you know, I'm always interested in the wiggly ways that people go from childhood to the world's greatest job. The detours along the way, the successes, the challenges, and today I have someone whose road uh, or seas have been quite long, which makes me extremely happy to introduce my guest, Merritt Carey, who's the general manager 
of Luke's Tenant Harbor. Hi. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome. And it is morning. Often, you know, we record midday, but um, just so all of you know, it is 7.30 in the morning, but it is a beautiful blue day in Maine. So I was intrigued by your story because we have a very similar point of origin, not our childhoods, which is the first thing I started with, but we both went to Brown University. We did. And, you know, I ended up um, in media, and you actually went to Brown and ended up doing a little media yourself before you ended up with a more, um, a different, completely different life. So I'd love to hear about your childhood growing up uh, in Maine, and I believe that you are a very ambitious Girl with a boat. I uh, ambitious is a an interesting word choice. Um, I grew up spending my summers here in Tenants Harbor, and my very first job was uh, delivering lobsters from this wharf that we're at uh, right now uh, for a woman named Mrs. Miller, who uh, was certainly uh, a big influencer in my life. Um, and I spent every summer here in Tenants Harbor until I uh, started my sailing career. And then I was, I missed two summers, I think. I was wow. down in New Zealand. Um, I, I need to hear about the the boat and bringing the lobsters, um, the cooked lobsters out to the boats. Yeah. Like, what was, the, what was that like? That was about the best job uh, I've ever had to date, all told. So my father got me, when I was around 11, my father got me a little 13-foot whaler. And my dad was a big, like, prid pro quo guy. He was like, I'm giving you this boat, but you're going to do something with it. It's not just <laughs> a gift. Um, so he, we came over here, and we met with Mrs. Miller. And I think my dad and Mrs. Miller actually concocted the whole idea of delivering the cooked lobsters and clams out to the boat. So Had anyone done that before? No. No one had done that before, no. and back then there was quite a lot of cruising yacht traffic that would come, the yacht clubs and so on and so forth. So I would uh, I would go out around 5, 5.30, and I'd go to all the different boats, and I'd say, Hi, I'm Merritt. I have Merritt's delivery service. I bring out <laughs> cooked lobsters and clams. And, Wait, how old were you? Uh, I was like 11, 12, 11, 13. Oh, my gosh. Um, you know, barefoot, blonde hair, like the whole <laughs> kit and caboodle. And so people would give me their orders, and I'd bring the orders in here. They'd cook them up here. Oh, my goodness. Put them in the wax paper bags close them up, write the names of the boats on the bags, I'd put them in my little skiff, and I'd head back out. And of course, by then, the guys had had a couple of drinks. And here I was, like, here's your warm lobster and your clams, and, you know, it was like cha-ching, cha-ching. I think the cha-ching um, was tips. The cha-ching was tips, yeah. exactly. Yeah, that's right. And so it was, it was great. And then in the mornings, I'd come along, and I'd pick up garbage, and I had a little um, basket full of muffins, and I'd get the New York Times. Oh, come and, on. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and so I'd make the rounds again in the morning. And I'm really you know, happy to see you in the morning. So yeah. what's the deal with picking up the garbage? Because they just couldn't well, drop the rounds. it's a pain. When you're on a boat, it's yeah. a pain to deal with garbage, right? Right. And so you got to row it in your skiff and put it in the dumpster. So if someone's offering to bring it in, you're like, yes, please. That's yes. wonderful. It saves us the hassle. It also seems yeah. like a great exchange, muffins for garbage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Exactly. 
Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that was sort of my introduction to this whole world. Um, and what about Mrs. Miller? First of all, I am intrigued that you call her Mrs. Miller to this day. <laughs> my first bo- boss was somebody named Mr. Lerman. Yep. And to this day, I cannot say, I mean, I can say it to you, Leah Lerman, but it, he was Mr. Lerman. He yeah. uh, came to work at Vogue magazine as the features editor in a purple tie every day. Purple tie, um, lavender shirt. Uh, in the winter, he wore a three-piece suit. In the summer, he wore a two-piece suit. Um, purple socks. And he wrote with a purple pen. And he, you know, Greta Garbo would call. Like, it was amazing. <laughs> but um, he was Mr. Lerman. Yeah. But yep. why was Mrs. Miller Mrs. Miller? I can't really answer the question. I mean, she was... Uh, not austere, but had high expectations and was the hardest worker I've ever seen in my life. She had nine kids, and the boys were all fishermen here. They still are. They still are. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And um, the girls, a few of them helped run the restaurant here, and the restaurant here was originally called Cod End because at the time they, it was all ground fishing. Um, so that so and she started the first. Wait, what is ground, ground fishing, fishing like? Haddock, cod, huh. fish that swim, kind of close to the ground. Close to the ground. Okay, I just I'm like, <laughs> wow, are there mudfish and I don't know about it? And you actually just get another on mudfish. Okay, I'm just checking. So and she was one of the first ones, honestly, who sort of started the you know fish to trap to table or fish to table because the boys were landing the fish here, and she, you know she would keep some. For the market, it was a fish market originally, and just cooked lobsters kind of on the side. Um, and a lot of the fish got trucked down to Boston. Um, so and you say one of the first, that's actually quite extraordinary. It's amazing. If back in the day, um, when was that? We're, so that was early, early mid-70s. Okay. Yeah. So, but it wasn't, because now, I'm not saying it's the rule, but so often, there will be a place where you can buy lobsters and eat a cooked one. But Mrs. Miller was ahead of the time. In many, many ways, I would say she was ahead of the time. Oh, what other ways? Well, just, I mean, you know, she had her... Employing an (laughs) 11-year-old. Yes. Um, You know, she had her master's in uh, education. She was teaching. She was raising a family. And then uh, when she and her husband retired and came up here, they bought this off of, uh, I believe it was her husband's brother, and she didn't necessarily know a ton about cutting fish and all of it, and she just went for it, you know, with her family. And That's a great role model. It's, it, was, it was pretty remarkable, all told. So I need to know how do you ended up at Brown? Like was Brown your you know was there a reason you went there? Did you? Um, well, there was a reason I went there, and I probably shouldn't admit this, but it was because it didn't have any requirements. <laughs> oh, so many you of us went cho- for that reason. You could choose your. You didn't have to take. I was like, this is great. I don't have to take any more math or science. <laughs> I was like, I can just study history and literature and take writing classes. Yeah, that's. that's <laughs> I mean, that doesn't describe completely why I went. Brown, but indeed I went because I wanted to write and I had very little interest in other things. Yes. And math, I had stopped taking math in 10th grade. Me too. Like, yes. I, this I is not a through. skill I'll need for my life. <laughs> I made it through junior, I think I made it through my junior year of high school. Then you math. did better yeah. than I. And actually, I went to Northfield Mount Hermon, which is a boarding school in western Massachusetts. 
And Mrs. Miller had gone there as well. And she wrote my letter of recommendation, which I'm convinced is why I got in, honestly. (laughs) She's a hard worker. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Good with muffins, garbage, and lobsters. (laughs) That's right. Exactly. Um, my son, ironically, is um, going to Putney. Yeah, you mentioned which that. Which is a, yeah, know, it's a boarding right, school right next Vermont. to yeah. Northfield Mount Hermon. Yeah. They compete, as Putney doesn't compete much, but when they do, um, they compete with in Northfield sports. Mount In sports, yeah. yes. Yeah. Yep. Sure they compete in other ways. It's beautiful out there. Yeah. So um, did Brown set the course of your future in any way, do you feel? I think, um, like Northfield Brown, very much, um, you know, it was... If you had an interest, you could dive into it. And it was funny. I was actually going through some boxes the other day. I don't know why. And I found that I had done a ton of research on the fishing industry and written all these research papers. One of them was called, like, Lobstering and Tourism in the State of Maine. Oh, my goodness. Which was really fun. I mean, I have no recollection of doing that, but obviously (laughs) I did because I had the, the piece of paper in front of me. So... This thread of coastal working waterfronts, it it very much has um, weaved through my life in many, many ways. So let's follow that thread a little bit, like a metaphor that actually works better than my (laughs) sea and road here. Um, So after you graduated, you... um, You worked in in Boston a bit, but you ended up on a boat pretty quickly. I did. I graduated from Brown. I wanted nothing better than to work in publishing in Boston. And I didn't want to move to New York um, because I was too wimpy, frankly. Um, (laughs) You don't appear to me to have any (laughs) wimpy qualities. Well, I, I had that wimpy quality. I still have that wimpy quality. In any case, there were no jobs. It was 1991, middle of the recession. It was a disaster. Um, I couldn't get a job. I was working a little bit at Inc. Magazine. Um, my parents had just gotten divorced. And I remember I was running along the Charles River, and I suddenly got this idea. And I was like, I'm going to get on a boat. I mean, I had a sailing background. I had grown up sailing. I wasn't, you know, by any stretch of the imagination, an expert. But I just... It just came to me while I was running, and I was like, that's what I'm going to do. And that's kind of... How did you even trust that notion and be like, and then I took a shower, and then I went back to publishing? Well, that's... That that sort of instinct, that's been a really guiding principle in my life. And I can't actually explain it, but I found that I have these thoughts from time to time, and I just go, and I just do it. And sometimes... I fall flat on my face, and sometimes it it parlays into something great. In this case, I I don't remember all the specifics of how I did it, but I made a bunch of phone calls, and I kind of, you know, did what you do when you really want to do something, which is you persevere. Yeah. And I got myself on a boat out of Camden, which is not too far from here, going down to Antigua. Um, so I delivered that boat. And then, honestly, one thing led to another. So what did and, you do on the boat? Well, we were just bringing it down. And so for that, I was just, you know, you have watches every four hours, four hours on, four hours off. And you just, you're just sailing. Huh. Um, and then once I got down there. Is that I, as lovely as it sounds? Or is it that can actually, be. It's uh-huh. wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it's It sounds it's like quite, quite the life, right? Because yeah. it's the sea, the air, the elements, you, yeah. whoever the crew is. Yeah. Yep. Um, I mean, the elements can be wonderful, and the elements can, can be, be really harsh, right? right? I mean, those trips are, generally speaking, you know, or that trip for me was, it was pretty easy. Um, 
Then I uh, heard about, through one of the guys I had met sailing, I heard about a, a women's team that was forming for the Around the World Race, which then was called the Whitbread Around the World Race, and, and now it's called the Volvo Ocean Challenge. It was actually just down in Newport a couple of weeks ago. Um, and again, I was like, yes, I'm doing that. And I got myself to Annapolis, where I heard the crew was assembling, um, and I just showed up on the side of the dock and I was with my sea bag, and I was like, I want to try out for this team. Okay, um, that's amazing. I just have to get a little deeper into that. How do you follow those instincts? And how do you, like, is there no voice in your head that says, you're crazy. Um, what about money? What about health insurance? What about, I mean, maybe at that age one doesn't, but. Well, it, it's so funny that you say that because at the same time I was about to go to Annapolis, Sail Magazine, which was based out of Boston, had an editorial opening, and they got in touch with me. Because you're and, the perfect person, actually, like, right. you're one of one for that and job. And it was, like, the perfect job. Yeah. And they were like, we want you to come and interview for this, and we really think you'd be a good fit, and so on and so forth. And I remember, I called my dad, and I was like, Dad, you know, what should I do? Because I'm really, I, I want to try this sailing, but, you know, here's a job. And he said, uh, he said, I think you ought to go and, you know, go up to s and, and interview with Sale. I really think you ought to pursue that. That's a great opportunity. And I didn't. <laughs> and <laughs> then, uh, Wait, but how hard you know, was that? Like, was, was he disappointed? With, did you? He, he was not, my, neither of my parents were particularly, uh, they were very good at kind of letting me make my own decisions yeah. and follow my own course. Um, and they, they never, they really never pushed me in any particular way. They kind of stepped back. But if I asked for advice, you know, generally they would give it. But the funny thing is, you know, years later I would ask my dad for advice yeah. and he wouldn't give it to me because he was like, I gave you such bad advice when I told you to go take the job in Boston oh. and you followed, you know, what you wanted to do and ended up sailing around the world and then doing all this other stuff. So I was, I got really frustrated with him. I was like, if I didn't want your advice, I wouldn't ask. I just want to be able to say yes or no. That doesn't exactly. mean I don't want to know what you have to say. That's right. Exactly. So that was funny. So that's a long rambling uh, answer to your question, but I don't often think about the downsides of uh -huh. things. And I, I think it must be characterological, right? They just don't... It's not that you... Some people write lists. Right. I feel like those people have the hardest time, right? Because it could be this, it could be that. But those who just have instincts that they trust, yeah. it's a little easier. Yeah, I, I can make decisions really quickly, and I can move really quickly. And sometimes it's good, and sometimes it's a disaster. And I always have this assumption that everything is going to come up roses. Yes. And of course, as you get older, you realize that is not the case. And sometimes it's really hard, and it really stinks. But it, it's definitely who I am. And I can't, you know, as as reasoned as I might be in my later years, I can't deny that instinct once I get something in my head like that's it does that scare you at all it's it like it terrifies me like <laughs> something in here is just gonna I'm gonna be yes. overtaken and I'm gonna be like yes. I'm leaving you three children yes. and beautiful husband because I need to take a balloon ride yes <laughs> it's yes it does a little bit it's um you know it, I think with all of us we have qualities that are uh, people admire or they, you know, they're, they're what make us who we are, but they always have undersides. Yeah. Right. And the underside in this case being sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes it doesn't work out. Sometimes I piss people off cause I move too quickly. Uh -huh. I mean, I, you know, it just, it is what it is. And um, do you find it hard to 
pull it back? Like, if you know that you're going to end up pissing people off, <laughs> do you, is it behavior you can moderate, but... Yeah, I can. And I don't, I mean, I certainly, I I tend to be quite sensitive to, uh, I don't like to piss people off. I hate conflict. So I'm very mindful of sort of where other people are landing around my decisions. So it's not like I'm irreverent and just like, oh, I don't care. But, you know, I do when I get an idea that I really believe in, it's kind of hard for me to turn that off. Um, So, selling around the world. So you arrive with a sale bag. (laughs) Yep. Which sounds amazing. What goes in a sale bag? <laughs> Wet weather gear. Okay, great. Um, you arrive with a sale bag, and they're like, who's this girl? It was an all-women's team. It was an all-women's team. team. Yeah, yeah. Was that special at the time, or was that... Yeah, so that was the second all-women's team to ever compete in that race. The first one had been, uh, was called Maiden, ironically. Oh <laughs> um, yeah, you know, it was the uh, early 80s, so yes. what are you going to do? Um <laughs> And I was woefully inexperienced, uh, but I would do anything, and I was a hard worker. And so they basically took me for that reason, I think. <laughs> um, and I ended up... So how big the, a crew is that? So it was 12 people, um, and it was about a nine-month... So, so that was Annapolis. We took the boat over to England. The race starts in Southampton, England. It's changed considerably since when I did it. Um, and you go all the way around the world. Um, and what happens if you get bored of the people, or think they're jerks, <laughs> or get seasick, or get sick sick? Not, nothing. Or nothing. Nothing. There's not, nothing. Did, did you think ahead about that, or just like no? No. That so, definitely didn't. I was twenty. I was the youngest one on the boat. I was twenty three years old. Uh huh. And do they turn out to be an incredible group of women that you're friends with to this day? Actually, or? yes. Most of them, yes, we're all friends. On, and, you know, from all over the world, Japan, New Zealand, you know, the whole kit and caboodle. And that was probably one of the neatest things, right? So I, I still, to this day, have this international community out there, which is just wonderful. You know, it's really cool. So if you're going around the world in nine months, do you get to stop and go see yes. the Eiffel Tower? Or no. do you, like, which is, not on, afterwards, the, which is not on the waterfront, no, I not. understand. But, <laughs> but, like, as a concept. Do you get off and see something, or you just see a lot of water? We, well, it was, we have different legs, so it wasn't all the way around the world all in one go. We had what we call layovers, and you, you know, you bring the boat in, you take them, I, I was responsible for the mast and the ring, so you take the mast out, you check all the gear, because I think the longest we were at sea was like 30 days, 30-something uh-huh. days, um, and... Then you need to, you know, you want to do all your maintenance to your boat and so on and so forth. So, so does it reset your, like, land and life priorities to be on a yeah. boat for 30 days yes. or nine months? And yes. in what way? Like, because in some ways your upbringing was pretty conventional, right? You, yes, and you went to a conventional, relatively yes. conventional schools. and um, Yeah, I, um, I, I think I, I always had, I grew up... My father was very influential in my life, and he was sort of the stoic New Englander, so I spent a lot of time with him hunting, you know, on the water, and I kind of cut my teeth on that. You know, the tougher you were, the more you were admired, and that, that I think, has landed me in some ways. That's charted the course for me, right? So I ended up, I've ended up working in many of these male-dominated industries, I think in part because it's where I'm most comfortable, because I can... It's just, it's what I grew up with, right? Like, work harder, you know, be tougher, so on and so forth. And sailing, fishing, all of those industries, it's, you know, for, it's sort of similar. 
Right, because now you're involved with the the world of lobster. Like we mm-hmm. called you at the head of the the show, the general manager of Luke's of Tenants Harbor, which I think I left the S out of. But um, <laughs> apologies. <okay. laughs> um, you know, once an editorial person, always an editorial person. I'm like, right. there is an S there, isn't there? <laughs> and then I listened. There was an S. Um, but what is it? Do you feel? female in that environment? Like, do you feel like there's something that women would bring that is different to these industries that you're in? Ooh, that's a tough question. I mean, I, so after the Around the World race, I um, became a member of the first ever All Women's America's Cup team. And that actually, that got a lot of media attention. And we got asked that question a lot. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, women's in a man's world. And, and I, I, I read not too, too long ago um, some of the quotes and magazine articles about it. And what I remember feeling was, like, it was just sailing. Like, I loved sailing. I loved being on the water. And that was that. Like, I didn't ever really think about anything one way or the other. And that's just the way I feel now. So it's hard for me to answer that question. Like, I, I love being near and working on the water. That's what I love. And I love writing. And um, if I can, you know, marry those two things at all, then that's great. Um, and I, I don't know if other women would have different um, opinions about that. I think, you know, it is very true that women are woefully underrepresented in these industries. Um, certainly in fishing, you know, there's a lot of women involved in the industries and you're seeing more and more women out you know, getting fishing licenses, getting involved, um, but it's still, quote-unquote, a man's world by any stretch of anyone's imagination, for better or for worse, it just is. So, we were talking about how, on the trip around the world, it, like if it reset priorities, mm-hmm. um, do you feel like it gave you a different sense of what's important, or you know, is there something that your mind had been working through uh, then on the boat in the in this sort the of southern ocean, exactly uh, dark night when our butter <laughs> sheared off that thing. <laughs> You're at the top of the mast, and like oh. that all happened actually. Um, yes, I think that in general, it kind of it it opened up um, for me a uh, a sense of perspective that maybe I wouldn't have gotten if I had been working in an office in Boston. Like, what is real? You know, what do you really have to fear? Mm-hmm. And what is fine? And I try very hard to carry that with me. I get a little, I can get kind of anxious and wound up about things. And I try to remember, you know, no one's sick. Mm-hmm. Like, no one's dying right mm-hmm. now. Like, everyone's good. So the rest of this, it's all first world problems. Yeah. And I... I don't always manage to keep that perspective, but I try very hard. And I do think it is connected back to, you know, some hairy times on the water where you're like, because our rudder really did shear off in the middle of the night and uh, when we were on the very last leg of the race. And we didn't, you know, we and it was blowing about 40 knots and it was pretty wild. Um, and we were just, the boat was spinning, spinning, spinning. Um, and... That sounds scary. It was. It was. It looks scary. like it's still just yeah. looking at your face. You're like, that was really scary. <laughs> it was very disorienting. That's the best word for it. Huh. You know that. You know they always say like a, a cork in the sea. That's what the boat. A boat in the middle of the ocean in a storm with no rudder. You're just. It's like a cork in the sea. And then what do you tossed do? Tossed around. 
Well, there was a Russian boat that was behind us, and they were carrying a spare rudder. So when they caught up to us like a day later, they put that rudder, um, they wrapped it with life jackets, they dumped it over the side, and they paid it out to us. And I was on the bow of the boat, and I just remember watching this rudder, because, again, we couldn't steer, so we couldn't maneuver our boat. I remember watching this rudder come down over the waves at us and thinking, this thing is going to go through the hull. Oh, my God. (laughs) And miraculously, it didn't. We got it, and then we wrapped some halyards around it, lifted it up over the side, and put it in the boat, and then spent another 24 hours basically retrofitting our boat to fit this rudder, which was not made for our boat. And that's how we finished the race, like three days after, three or four days after everyone else had gotten into port. We limped in. Um, oh my, but you, it was quite a homecoming when we got there, though. <laughs> you finished the race? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I guess, yeah. did anyone ever have the thought, like, let's just, you know. There wasn't really much we could, I mean, yeah. let's just give it up. Would get have been like airlifted. Yeah, you couldn't tow it. I mean, we're yeah. in the middle of the ocean, <laughs> oh so. Um, yeah. But how lucky were you that there was the boat behind you? Yeah, it's a good question. That's funny. I've never actually thought about what would have happened if that boat hadn't been behind. I don't know. They probably would have had to airlift some kind of a rudder or something to us. But we would have then been disqualified in the race. So So you finished the race, which is great. finished the race. Yeah, it was pretty neat. And I flew right from there to San Diego. Um, And I'll never forget because I had been living out of the States for a long time. And I flew in. I didn't even go to the awards ceremony. I flew back to the States. We had this sort of quote-unquote dog and pony show for the America's Cup thing, this big blitz, um, media blitz. And I came back to the apartment I was staying in, and the O.J. Simpson. Oh, yes. uh, The chase was on, and I turned on the news, and the chase was on. And I must have fallen asleep in, like, 2.5 seconds. And I remember I woke up, like, hours later, and the chase was still on. So that was my welcome back to the United States. Um, That's obviously memorable for so many reasons. (laughs) And this is the crazy stuff that happens on land. That's exactly (laughs) right. Exactly right. Well, with that incredible story, we're going to take a quick break and stay with us, because when we come back, we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, favorite foods on Earth, which is lobster of Maine. Be right back. I'm Souther Teague of Moria Margo and co-host of The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by the Sexton Single Malt Irish Whiskey, a new and unexpected modern malt for the everyman. The whiskey is made from 100% Irish malted barley, triple distilled for smoothness in copper pot stills, and consciously aged for four years in Oloroso sherry butts. My favorite part about the Sexton is that sherry influence from those Oloroso sherry butts. They're the large sherry uh, barrels that have been used, and then the uh, the whiskey gets aged in them for four years, giving them this sort of nutty, almost savory quality. Um, The copper pot still makes for an extremely smooth finish. Um, I like it in a highball or just neat. Uh, Every time I have a sip, I, I want another one. So next time you're gathered with friends or posted up at your favorite bar, reach for The Sexton, the best-selling Irish single malt in North America. You can learn more at thesexton.com. Well, welcome back. This is Dana Count, and you are listening to a very special episode of Speaking Broadly, brought to you from Tenants Harbor in Maine on a beautiful, beautiful um, blue day. And I am uh, talking to Merritt Carey, who has had quite a life on the water and on land. And now we're going to go a little bit land, land side. Well, you, you uh, went to New Zealand 
um, after circumnavigating the globe on a boat with a rudder that fit, that sheared off in the middle of the ocean, and I mean middle, middle, middle of the ocean, not like you can see a shore, um, that wasn't enough to keep you on land for a while? I don't know. I guess once you have your sea legs, you kind of always have your sea legs. So... What were you doing in uh, New Zealand? Well, I after the America's Cup, I actually had to have knee surgery. So I was we we did some sailing with the women's team in France and Japan and some really neat stuff. And then I had to have knee surgery, and I was going to have to be off the water for a while. And I uh, was dating a fellow that lived in New Zealand at the time, and I thought, well, I'll just move to New Zealand, and I'm ready to go back to school. So I'll just go to law school down there. So that's oh my what goodness. I did. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me that law school came to you, like, when you were running as a great idea. I just can't imagine that. Maybe I was trying to um, make up for uh, my <laughs> all my bravado and sailing. But I did, I will say this, I, you know, I've always really enjoyed intellectual pursuits. And I had, at that point, been sailing professionally for, I don't know, a good six or seven years. And I really was ready to sink my brain into something more intellectual and more challenging. And why I chose law school, I don't know, because I frankly, I am a terrible, was a terrible lawyer. I still have my law, my um, license to practice, but it does not suit me or my personality <laughs> at all. Having said that, it was a great exercise in really challenging my brain to think very differently, very logically. So I'm grateful for the experience. But uh, how do you think a brain does with that? Because there's a I have a whole set of things that I say to myself like either I don't want to or I can't. And, you know, in this woo-woo world that, like, I sort of live in, where we're all empowered to do everything, I'm like, I should get rid of those words from my vocabulary. I can do anything, and I should want to do anything. And, you know, it's a struggle for me, because there's certain things, like, we were talking about math, math. earlier. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like, I, I'm just never really, you know, I'd love to, you know, get, um, like, the, an executive MBA. Like, there's probably math involved with that. <laughs> So, <laughs> I, yes. so I think that I just have to like put that to the side. But law school just seems, um, you know, like did you did you find your brain was quite elastic in studying or? Like, yeah, I mean it. You know, I had to kind of knock a lot of rust off some of yeah. the studying habits and so on and so forth. But it was really neat going to law school in New Zealand. I actually went for. Uh, two years down there, and then I came back and I finished my law degree here. I actually got quite a bit of credit for what I'd done then there, which was great. Um, but it was neat because I was learning all about the Commonwealth legal system, which is quite so. It was like a double education. It oh was goodness. like a crash course in Commonwealth law or Commonwealth history plus the legal on top of it. It was neat. It was really, really um, pretty great. And I'm very glad I did it. And I'm also very glad I'm not practicing law anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so. To today here we're we're um, at Luke's and I'm here to eat some eat some lobster and I would love just to learn about your like life in lobster here and the the choices that you made to stay um, in ten well you're in Yarmouth yeah I guess yeah um, which is half an hour no it's about an hour and forty five minutes oh heavens. but we have a house we I'm up here for the summer every I summer see. so right. Um, yeah, I uh, I had been doing a lot of work in uh, rural economic development, consulting, a lot of marketing, communications, so on and so forth. And long story short, um, I was uh, working for the Maine Lobster Marketing Collaborative, doing some writing for them and going stern man every now and again. And uh, I still am doing that. 
Um, and up here, I had started talking, you know, I had always known these guys um, that own the wharf here, and we had just started talking, and I learned that they were potentially going to sell this wharf, because it's very, very hard to compete mm-hmm. now, and all the other family-owned wharfs, with one exception in the area, they've all been sold to pretty big entities, and with my sort of rural economic, community-based brain, I just, in my mind, I just thought, it would be really sad um, to, to see lose that this happen. one to yeah. a bigger yeah. um, conglomerate. Well, yeah. let's, let's talk for a minute about the rural economic, what was it? Development. Development, yeah. <laughs> um, so did is that something you, you studied? Because like, I feel like the, the audience would love to hear, I mean, I'd love to hear yeah. more about that. Um, is it you were studying communities or you were helping communities? What is that? Um, well, I when I left the practice of law, I sort of went out on my own, and one thing sort of led to another, and I ended up doing quite a bit of work for um, an entity called Coastal Enterprises, and they are a real, rural economic development corporate. They that's what they do, or that's a lot of what they do. So they do financing for smaller businesses. They really focus on economic development in more rural areas, and of course, Maine is a rural area. All of it. I mean, you um, go north of here, and yeah. I mean, yeah, there's it's yes, um, and it just with my sort of draw to the coast, it really, um, it, it just was a really good fit for me. And you know, keeping our working waterfronts is has become you know a real issue for the state of Maine. Um, the state itself has a lot of policies in place to protect the working waterfronts, but there's always this pressure because the real estate is very valuable as, you know, privately owned houses. Um, and there's there's always some conflict between people who come to Maine for, you know, two weeks and they want it just pristine and, you know, beautiful. And maybe they like the lobster boat out half a mile, but they sure don't want the bait zactic filled with herring right next to them or the bait cooler that, you know, it's on all night. So there's this conflict. Um, and I really feel like... I don't want Maine to become the state where people just come and look at the view because mm-hmm. then we are not who we are. I want Maine to really remain keep this waterfront really robust. And um, what's the answer to that? Because I I think that it is what you're describing is replicated, um, although maybe not so acutely. Because in this case, it is the stinky bait or the, the you know the noise or just the sound of work. It's industry, which, right? People don't really like the sound no. of work. No, um, and they don't necessarily like to see it right. close up. Close up. Um, so, on the other hand, people need jobs, tourism, and vacationers right. are right. the number one... Number um, one industry in industry. Maine right now. Yeah. So, how do, you, how do you balance that out? Well, my own view is um, two ways. Food and education, at least as far as sort of the coastal economies go, right? So I feel like when people understand, for example, the lobstering industry or aquaculture, I helped found an aquaculture here and we're growing scallops. Um, When people understand that and they can connect it to fresh seafood that they love, um, I think they become more tolerant of you know, the industry side of things, because they understand it, right? I was in Portland for a couple of days before coming here and ate sort of around the clock very happily, but the food was (laughs) exceptional, Um, and I think it's partly because people are drawn to the closeness to the farms and the water, Um, and so you can have 
that connection that you've just described yep. really very genuinely. Yes. Um, yes. And I think the lobstering industry is unique in that it cannot be corporatized. Much of it can't be corporatized because because there's an owner operator requirement for every lobsterman. So um, if a lobster fisherman gets sick, he or she can't um, ask someone else to go out and haul their traps for them. So you cannot consolidate the fishery. Um, that's why you have, you know, I think it's 5,200 individual lobster fishermen going out every day on their boats. And there's no way to, to buy that. You can't buy it and you can't consolidate it. It's the most inefficient business model ever known to man, (laughs) but it's what's keeping our coastal economies, particularly down east, thriving. That is extraordinary. But when you say that the, um... The wharfs, the docks, have yeah. been bought by bigger right. companies. So what is that? So someone. So those would... are buying stations. So that would be, you know, a, a corporation can buy a wharf. They buy the lobsters from the individual fishermen and sell them, and so on and so forth. I see. Um, when just circling back, when I when I sort of learned this, when I learned this wharf might get sold, um, I started brainstorming with um, some of the fishermen um, and. I contacted Luke Holden and said, I had read a lot about Luke's and I knew about Luke's and I knew that he was really keen to sort of tell the story. And basically I was like, uh, there's this wharf. I think you should get involved. I, Are you kidding? You, know, <laughs> you cold called Luke? No, I didn't cold call him. Cold I, got an, I got an introduction from Matt Jacobson, who is the executive director of the Maine Lobster Marketing Collaborative. He did an email intro for us. And then, yeah, I, we set up a time to talk. That's so funny because I was imagining you know, the, the we're sitting in a beautiful old building, shack, I'm going to call yep. it. And, you know, with the Luke's uh, name on the front. And I'm familiar with Luke's, as many listeners may be, from... Um, you know, the restaurants that are in New York City. There's mm-hmm. one a couple of blocks mm-hmm. from my house. And and when I arrived here, I was like, oh, this must be the origin story I didn't know. <laughs> that, you know, he started because he was a kid like you going on a skiff. And, well, that is true. And serving Mrs. Miller's lobsters or someone's lobsters. But um, so I didn't realize that's that's how Luke's arrived here. Yes. Was you just yeah. reached out and said, yeah. I think I've got a great opportunity for you. Something like that, yes. And it was actually uh, Luke and one of the fishermen here, Hale Miller, they sort of, the idea of the co-op, forming a co-op, um, uh, sort of took, you know, rose to the top in terms of creative solutions to keep this wharf here and so on and so forth. So, you know, the salient the salient elements of that story are that Luke, um, we gathered as many fishermen as we could get. You know, there was a, a number of fishermen here already fishing off this wharf, but we needed more. We needed more volume because this is a volume business. Um, and so we, so the fishermen that fished here started talking to other fishermen, and we had meetings all that winter, and Luke showed up to every single meeting. And that was a big deal. That's amazing. Where does yeah. Luke live? He lives down in South Portland. Okay. Um, so it wasn't he wasn't coming up from New York, but it's, you know, There were a lot of meetings, and they took a long time, and it was just a trust-building exercise, honestly. Um, And my job was essentially as the liaison, if you will, and I kind of kept the train on the tracks, and I kind of kept people engaged, um, and in very 
it felt like a long time, but in reality, it was only about four or five months we formed a co-op. And that's where my law degree was helpful because I was like, I can do, I know how to write these files. So we, you know, we formed that co-op and um, it's been really wonderful. Um, So how many people are are in the co-op? And when you say it's a a volume business, you mean, well, explain that. So volume, I mean, it's cost per pound, right? So the more, the more volume of lobsters you coming, you have coming over the wharf, the more your overall expenses go down. Um, just like many businesses, right? Um, because but because there's a distributor who takes them off. Because we have to employ wharf employees to help us, so all of the co- operational costs yeah. get defrayed. The Got more it. volume, yeah, of course. The, yeah, so that's that. That's that piece. Luke uh, Luke buys all the lobsters yeah. that um, we land. I guess here. that was actually my yeah. question. So right. I see. Oh, how great for him. Yes. So it's great for him. Um, it's great for us. He sits on the board of the co-op as do I, which is unusual. Mostly there's 22 fishermen's co-op in the state of Maine. And I don't know of any that have non-fishermen sitting on their board. So that's kind of a unique, it's probably also um, helpful to have an outside th- perspective perspective. I think that it's helpful. Um, I mean, I don't know, you'd have to ask the guys. <laughs> they might be like, oh, we can't stand having those guys on the board. But I think certainly what I can say is unique and really um, great about this model is that our fishermen have direct contact with not only Luke, who is you know buying the lobsters, but the end user, right, the consumer. So all these lobsters that are caught here, they're all traceable, right? And, yeah. you know, that's the that's the thing that Luke is doing, and he's... You know, they're telling the story of the fishermen, and that's that's why I'm running Luke's here this summer. I'm not a cook, I'm not a chef, but I know the fishermen, I know this local community, um, and I will be able to help, I believe, kind of bring everything together, because that's the role I've ended up playing, is sort of, it's almost like... You know the connector between what goes on on the on the wharf and all, not the rest of the world, but you know I can easily float between worlds. That's probably the best way to to put it, and I love that role because I love sharing the story. Right. Um, and do you you said that you love writing? Yes. Is this something yeah. that you you would you know? Do you want to write about all of your experiences that you've had? I actually, yes, I do. I actually started a blog not long ago. I've been wanting to do it for like five years, and I finally was like, I need to just do this. So I started a blog, so I've been writing little blog posts. So in addition to writing for the Maine Lobster Marketing Collaborative, I just write some of my own pieces on kind of whatever strikes me. I wrote Mm -hmm. one about running halibut. You know, I was sort of fishmonger for a day. I buy some halibut from these guys, and I bring it down to Portland because they can get a better market there. So there's just, you know, my life is so... Every day is different. Um, And so I, you know, I wanted... I just want to keep writing about it um, as much as I can. I did one about a fly fishing trip I took with my son, which was really neat, and so... So you have three kids. Are you bringing them... You're bringing them up on the water at least... Some yep. of the time. Yep. Um, do they think you're, you know, like, Mom, you're nuts? That's my kids. Are like, <laughs> yes. Mom, you're nuts? Yes. Um, <laughs> or? My husband and my kids all think I'm certifiable. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a running joke, actually. Uh, mostly it's a funny joke. It's not always a funny joke. Yeah. Um, and w- why is that? Just because you work so hard at... This? Yeah, I, and, you know, and... W- 
my kids are like, you are just not like any other moms we know. <laughs> like, and it's true. I, you know, I am, I never have little snack packs. I'm, you know, I can barely remember like which kid is playing which sport and, you know, how am I going to get them there? And, you know, it's, it is a proverbial juggling. I, you know, I, my kids are so wonderful and they are all sort of growing in different ways and they're all quite independent and quite capable. And I, you know, I mean, I believe part of it is because I'm not doing everything for them. You know, it's like you got to figure this out on your on your own. Right. Not, I, I can't. I have too much going on. Um, I, I like um, the idea that uh, independence breeds resilience mm-hmm. as opposed to resentment, mm-hmm. um, you know, which I think, you know, I've experienced a, a little a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, because I also have kids who I've empowered to, right. you know, do a lot on their own, mm-hmm. um, uh, who also, I don't know if they think I'm crazy, but they think that I'm certainly distracted. <laughs> yes, my kids, yes, probably distracted is um, a good word. Yeah. In fact, they, they continuously have to finish my sentences for me, <laughs> and they're like, I hated how you do that, Mom. You start your sentence, and you don't ever finish it, because I get distracted. Yes, that happens to me as well. And um, I mean, not that like this Lake City Mouse and Country Mouse or Sea Mouse are the same at all, but I will say I definitely stop, and they're just like, yes? Yes. <laughs> Were you trying to say something? I'm like, well, I was, but... Um, I guess I just drifted <laughs> off there. Um, and I, I know I can put sentences together because I've, you know, we, I can have conversations, but somehow, uh, you know, there's it's a easy lot. to get distracted. Yeah. There's a lot going on there's in a, your mind. There's I'm a, sure. There's a yeah. lot going on. Yeah. Um, so just thinking of, you know, the future, future generations, and this is, you know, maybe too puffy and broad a question, but um, are there are there things that you think of and you're like, well, this is what I want, you know, my kids to take away from this? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of what we can do here at the co-op is because it's small and because we're sort of, we kind of founded the co-op on innovative principles. We did an island cleanup last Sunday. Um, we had over 100 volunteers. We took like 5,000 pounds of garbage off of an offshore island called Cree Haven. Wow. Our fishermen, you know, their day off Sunday, you can't fish in Maine. They took a Sunday. They went out in their boats. They spent their own money, so on and so forth, hauled a bunch of trash back. And my kids were involved in that, right? And actually, it coincided with World Ocean Day, so it was really, really neat. Um, and you know, I've, I started this scallop aquaculture co-op, um, with some of the fishermen here and also some other fishermen up in Stonington. That's a diverse income diversification. Um, how do we keep, how do we keep these working waterfronts going? Um, you know, lobster is amazing and it's, you know, it's what's kept this economy going, but there's no other fisheries right now that are really vibrant, whereas it used to be, you know, you'd go scalloping, you'd go uh, ground fishing, you'd go shrimping, and a lot of those other fisheries are gone, so it's just lobster. So I feel for the future, like, I want to see this diverse and robust um, economy all up and down our coastline, and that's for my kids, right? I mean, I don't know what they'll do. They may go, you know, who knows, but... That's work that I can get behind and that I know my kids, they see me doing that and they see how passionate I am about it. And I think on some level they 
they appreciate it. They know that I'm trying to do something good. Um, and you know, whether and I'm successful, <laughs> yeah, no, and they'll know. And meanwhile, you know, they they go lobster fishing and they make some money and they, you know, they feel very comfortable here. Um, and I really love that. They really, you know, they come up in the summer. They don't do camps really. They just, you know, free range kids, right? It's just like, <laughs> I mean, it was not uncommon when I was a girl, but right. it's very uncommon now. And I'm, I feel really lucky that I can, that you know, we can provide that for them. I mean, so. free, you know, free range and so many um, <laughs> food related things are great. Right. Just as we just right. don't want to eat our children, but free range is great. Um, and we've talked. I, I have to say that this conversation is so inspiring. I, feel like we began and you're saying that you know you've had successes and failures mm. I don't it might be just my interpretation of failure is um closer to yours which is it's not failure when you just move through it right um but when you say that you came up against obstacles like is there a story in your mind of something where you know you tried and it didn't work out and then it just made your resolve even greater um, or didn't make your resolve greater you just were like I'm moving on well, I uh, probably the greatest challenge that I've had um, uh, to date is I actually had a heart attack. Oh my heavens! A couple of years ago, this is very um, unusual uh, type of heart attack. It's a just a tear in your uh, uh, I don't know. Your, it's a tear, not it doesn't have anything to do with high blood pressure or anything, and it's incredibly rare. <laughs> and I had it, and I and I then for like two days, I didn't go to the emergency. I didn't know I'd had a heart attack. I was right. just like, oh, my stomach really hurts. And I ate Tums, which I'd never eaten before. And um, finally, a friend was like, go to the bleeding ER. Yeah. And it turned out I'd had this heart attack. And that was not so great. <laughs> I was not so happy. Um, and then for like six months or a couple of months, I had to keep my heart rate low so the tear could heal. And so it's called a spontaneous coronary artery something. I don't know. Um, long story short, that was a real lesson in like, you just can't do, you know, you don't know what's around the corner. Right. And you don't know anything really. Um, and I'm fine, and I don't, I never even think about it. Every now and again, people are like, how are you? And I'm like, why are they asking <laughs> yeah, me right. that question? <laughs> With that looking people, around. Yeah, people who I haven't seen for a long time. Um, but I just kind of move through it in the way that I do. Um, and which is not to in any way, shape, or form diminish the severity of what happened. Mm -hmm. um, and it was, you know, it actually, it really made me sort of think twice about like, holy smokes, like, it, it reinstilled that, like, life is short. Right. You don't know what's coming at you, so you better make the most of every minute. It actually, that actually happened while I was setting up the co-op, ironically. Oh yeah. Um, so I guess, you know, that, I, it was, it was a challenge to kind of come to terms with that, because I think I had felt a little bit infallible right. previously. My, like, my physical body has always served me really, really well. Um, and I, I, it was, I was like, what? You know, this, <laughs> what are you doing, yeah, buddy? Basically, like, Come are you on. kidding me? Like, yeah. I don't have time for this. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah, I would say that, that was, that was a pretty big deal in hindsight. Sure. And having to, I'm sure it changed every single thing about what you were doing because your physical life is your, I mean, you have an intellectual life as well. Yeah. But it's very well balanced. Yes. Yeah, it did. And, you know, for those however many months where I had to, you know, I wasn't allowed to get my heart rate up because I'd like to run and I, you know, it was, 
it was a real awakening. I mean, very quickly after that, I was kind of back to everything I was doing, and I feel great, and I, um, so I'm, you know, I'm really lucky. Um, and they know nothing about this condition. They, mm-hmm. There's just no, it's a very, very unusual condition that, you know, I read, I started reading about it, and I was like, this is just frustrating, because there's no, there's nothing more I can do to improve. I can't like exercise more, you know, my blood pressure is low, my arteries are clear as whistles, like I'm in perfect, you know, perfect health in that regard. So there's, it's one of those situations where it's not like, you know, eat less fat or it's just cross your fingers, basically. Yeah, Um, it's not, um, but on the other hand, right, that doesn't seem so good. On the other hand, you know, it means you live life every single day. Yeah. And take great pleasure and make the change you can. Yeah, that's right. I mean, honestly, I know, like I said, I never think about it. And sometimes people are like, how are you feeling? I feel fine. How are you feeling? (laughs) How are you? (laughs) Let's talk about you. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Well, with with that, um, that concludes this episode of Speaking Broadly. Thank you so much for tuning in. Um, So where can people find you online, Merit, or... If people want to know more about the lobster main or the... Well, let's see. So there's um, the Tenants Harbor Fisherman's Co-op has a Facebook page. Luke's at Tenants Harbor has a Facebook page where you'll see lots of tasty lobster delights. Um, uh, my blog is called Merit in Maine. And obviously Luke's Lobster, just more generally, um, they have a strong social media presence. So... All of those will will find you uh, lots of seafood and lots of seafood and lots of interesting stories. That's great. And you guys know where to find me, FW Scout, on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah, I never really embraced that Facebook thing, though. I'm I am there. Um, and that we do have Instagram pages as well. Okay, so stick to you next week, and um, thank you, David Tatashore, for being the miraculous engineer that you are. Um, see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.